This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. Today, we're going to be talking about a bankruptcy case. We'll be talking with Eric Winston, who's one of my partners. He practices bankruptcy law in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Hey, John. Good to see you. And this is a really interesting case. It relates to an interesting matter that we've discussed on this podcast before. This relates to the 3M earplugs products liability litigation, where there are claims brought by, I think, almost 300,000 armed forces veterans who say their hearing is permanently damaged because they use defective earplugs that were sold to the military by 3M. And actually, uh, this all started at Quinn Emanuel. If you listen to the May 11th podcast this year, we talked to a associate at our firm by the name of Matt Hosen. The litigation with 3M began with 3M suing our client for patent infringement. We thought the patent claim was completely meritless and that the claim was brought in bad faith. So after we got dismissed, we brought a claim for essentially misuse of the patent laws, using the patent laws in it for, to stifle competition. And in that case, Matt Hosen, who I think at the time was like a second-year associate, found a 3M document, which we only got after motions to compel and a lot of trouble, in which 3M essentially acknowledged that the earplugs they had been selling to the military were defective and did not perform the way they were supposed to have been to perform and had not been tested the way they were supposed to be tested. As a result of that, we brought a False Claims Act against 3M. The Justice Department intervened in the False Claims Act as it can. There was a settlement. The Justice Department issued a press release, as it does, announcing the settlement with 3M that there was this defective earplug, millions of which have been sold to the military. This was not lost on the plaintiff's mass tort bar, and they immediately got organized, and thousands, tens of thousands, ultimately hundreds of thousands of claims were brought, centralized in a multi-district litigation proceeding in Florida. Eric, remind me where that is. It's uh, Pensacola, Florida. Pensacola, yep. Before Judge Rogers. And this is the largest mass tort in history. And we're involved in the in the leadership, of, although this is not what the Queen Emanuel firm does typically, is represent plaintiffs in mass tort actions. Since we had been there at the inception, we continued to be involved. We're on the management committee. The judge, Judge Rogers, set up a series of bellwether trials. She basically said to the parties, we're going to try 15 of these cases. Plaintiffs, you pick five. Defendants, you pick five. And I'll pick five. And it'll help us assess the value of these cases. And, and I think the hope was that this would lead to settlement. We, our firm, actually tried three of those cases. We won all three of them. I personally spent a month down in Gainesville, Florida, trying one case, one of those cases. A settlement did not immediately ensue. The judge said, okay, I'm going to start sending hundreds of these cases out to district courts to where they were originally filed all over the United States. And 3M, you're going to start having to defending these cases in courtrooms all around the United States. And what does 3M do in response to that? And this is where Eric Winston, bankruptcy proceedings and bankruptcy law enters the picture. 3M causes its subsidiary, Arrow, where the earplugs, I guess, were made, Eric? Originally, the earplugs were made by Arrow, and then 3M bought Arrow in 2008. 
Right. And, and after 3M bought Aero, did the, that subsidiary continue to be the only 3M entity that was involved in the manufacturer? Or is that, that's a question. That That's in fact a very <laughs> interesting and important question, both in the MDL and in the bankruptcy. Uh, All right. So, so 3M is facing trials and hundreds. Ultimately, it's got to be thousands, tens of thousands, potentially lawsuits on these claims where the plaintiffs have done very, very well in the cases that were tried. And in response, it puts this entity into bankruptcy. And Eric, this is when you get involved. Tell us, what was 3M trying to accomplish? What was their strategy here? Yeah, so 3M, and, it, and they called it a litigation risk strategy. Their goal was to use a, a procedure that had been used in other cases, like Johnson & Johnson LTL and a couple of asbestos cases. Or rather than 3M filing for bankruptcy, it would cause its subsidiary that was uh, potentially on the hook for these liabilities to file for bankruptcy. And the subsidiary would immediately seek to enjoin all litigation against 3M um, with respect to the earplugs. And that's exactly what they did. They, on the day of the bankruptcy filing, like within a nanosecond of filing the bankruptcy case, they filed what's called an adversary proceeding, which is a lawsuit in a bankruptcy case that sought to enjoin the MDL and a, uh, a smaller uh, companion case in Minnesota State Court and enjoin them during the heart of the bankruptcy, during the course of the bankruptcy. And that, that was the goal. Now you would ask, why would you even, like, why would you care about this? It's because they want to channel all of those tort claims into the bankruptcy and use the bankruptcy code to force the plaintiffs to take probably less than they would otherwise get. And 3M would be able to avoid paying a lot more money uh, through a bankruptcy case. And really for the first time in a very long time, we were able to stop this pr procedure whereas it had been largely successful in other cases. Let's talk about that a little bit. I know in the case I tried, and I assume in most of the cases, uh, 3M was a defendant. I don't remember. I assume the subsidiary Arrow was also in the caption as a defendant. But I know 3M was a defendant. And I saw the evidence. And if you look at the evidence, a lot of the evidence is 3M documents. 3M did this. 3M officials are involved. It's hard for me to see how this works. Uh, they're just trying to bankrupt the subsidiary. It would seem like the parent is still going to be on the hook. They're still facing these claims. How could they think this would work? So you, you've asked the, the heart of the question why these procedures are so controversial. So in the MDL, 3M was a co-defendant with Arrow. You're absolutely correct that uh, in all the Bellwether trials, it certainly looked like it was all 3M and Arrow was an afterthought. And in fact, in the bankruptcy case, in the trial that we did, that was a highlight of the bankruptcy case, exactly what 3M did versus Arrow. But the idea is that 3M would kick in money into the bankruptcy in exchange for getting a third-party release. In other words, the release of the claim, the tort claimants against 3M would be done through the bankruptcy. And there's, a, there's precedent for this going back decades relating to asbestos cases. And it's extended beyond the asbestos cases into other mass torts like Dow Corning, Purdue Pharma. Um, and, and the latest iteration of it is what's called the Texas two-step where 
a solvent company creates a subsidiary, puts all of the liabilities into the subsidiary, and then the subsidiary files for bankruptcy and immediately seeks to enjoin litigation against its solvent non-debtor parent. And the solvent non-debtor parent pays, it definitely pays, but it's hoping to pay far less than it would otherwise have to pay outside of bankruptcy. And that's what 3M did with Arrow, except they didn't even do the Texas two-step. They did it uh, sort of a more of a short-circuited version through what they uh, through what they called a funding agreement, where 3M agreed to pay whatever the liabilities of Arrow that, that existed, including earplugs. So 3M's commitment was not capped. They'll say, not they'll say, we're on the hook. We're behind whatever Arrow has to pay. We're good for that. So it's not like they're just trying to ring fence Arrow and say, you can only look to Arrow for recoveries here. They're, they've got their checkbook back out and they're saying, we're going to backstop everything. That is what the funding agreement said. And you would think, well, what's the harm in that? Yeah, I was well, just wondering, why, why, doesn't, why aren't all the plaintiff's lawyers perfectly content with that? Well, the interesting thing is, in most of these cases, because the, the Texas two-step, LTL Johnson Johnson and others like it, all have this feature. But what, what the funding agreements typically provide is that the solvent non-debtor, here 3M, pays through a bankruptcy. And through a bankruptcy, they start trying to estimate the tort claims. They try to force the tort claimants to file proofs of claim, which is a, a process. They delay things. The bankruptcy can take years. The first of the two Texas two-step cases, it's been around since 2017. It still hasn't really moved. And the goal is, yeah, between delay and, and headaches of bankruptcy, particularly in a jurisdiction where you know, it's far away from uh, where the plaintiff's lawyers come from, that eventually they'll cave. They'll take less. So instead of these cases, going back to the home districts, wherever the veterans and their lawyers file, filed these cases and having jury trials, if 3M had been able to accomplish what it sought to do, all these claims would have been tried in bankruptcy court? And, and would there have been jury trials? Uh, so no, there would be no jury trials. Bankruptcy courts cannot conduct jury trials without the consent of both sides. And in particular, personal injury claims, bankruptcy courts tech actually have no jurisdiction to try those. So again, you'd ask, what's the point of all of this? But there is a procedure in bankruptcy called estimation. And there, bankruptcy courts can estimate claims, including personal injury claims, to determine what should be the amount necessary for confirming a plan and moving the, the company out of bankruptcy. Does that assume liability, the estimation process? They're going to say, let's assume they're all liable. We're going to estimate the value of these claims. No. In fact, part of estimation will account for the fact uh, that there may be defenses to the claims. Oh, so they'll be discounted for, for uh, potential defenses. 100%. 100%. And that, in fact, was going to be the goal here. On the first day of this bankruptcy case, in addition to suing to enjoin, they put out um, a pretty extraordinary description of the MDL and their intentions in the bankruptcy. It surprised me to see sort of a vitriolic attack on the MDL, which is what occurred on the first day of the case, saying the MDL process was broken, it was leading to absurd outcomes. But they also very transparently said, we are going to seek to estimate the claims and we're going to assert whatever defenses we can, including defenses that have been litigated 
and lost in the MDL, such as the government contractor defense. So yes, wow. yes, they no doubt they were going to seek to estimate at a very low number. And in fact, they put out a number. 3M said, we're right now telling the world we're going to put a billion dollars up front to fund these claims. That was what they believed the estimated liabilities were going to be. I mean, just, just so people know, if you average and project out the value of the results of the bellwether claims, uh, including those where the plaintiffs lost, if you project those out over the total number of claims on average, I think it comes to over a trillion dollars. Obviously, neither Arrow nor 3M have a trillion dollars. Sometime, yeah. at, at some point, a deal is going to have to be done here. And in fact, there was a very interesting moment in the bankruptcy trial where one plaintiff's law firm, not, not us, not others in our group, but one actually tried to argue that 3M was going to be rendered insolvent and put on an expert and, that the bankruptcy court allowed to testify. The bankruptcy court ultimately didn't agree with the expert's conclusions and said the evidence wasn't there to demonstrate 3M was insolvent. But one plaintiff's law firm took that position. Um, and what they were trying to do was enjoin shareholder dividends and things like that to 3M. That did not work out for them. Um, and I'm happy it didn't work out for them. But you're right. It's very clear that if if you take the average plaintiff jury verdict, including the ones that haven't prevailed, and, and apply it to 200,000 plus claims, it starts to be a very, very, very large number. All right. So 3M puts Arrow into bankruptcy on day one, files this proceeding to try to enjoin the whole MDL, filing a document basically challenging the whole MDL, the fairness of the whole MDL process, and basically saying it's broken and bankruptcy judge, please save us from the American judicial system and what it's doing to us. And you get a phone call. Tell us how this went down for you, because I assume you had had no previous involvement in the earplugs litigation. I had none. I had none. I, I got a call from our partner, Adam Olson, who's obviously, you know, John, you know, has been heavily involved in the MDL. And he's like, Eric, what do we do? And how do we coordinate with all of the other plaintiff's law firms? And with Patty Tomasco and a couple of the others in the bankruptcy group, we were able to jump in pretty quickly, literally within 24 hours and start to identify the strategy that would ultimately prevail. And I, and I say within 24 hours because what Arrow wanted to do was not only enjoin litigation against 3M during the course of the bankruptcy, but get a TRO immediately because things were happening in the MDL. And that TRO is, a, again, in the, in the playbook in all of these bankruptcy cases, and it has almost always been granted. And they were seeking a TRO the day after they filed. So we had to move really quickly. Uh, a couple things happened. One, really through Adam you know, getting us uh, front and center, we were able to quite quickly unify uh, and working with other bankruptcy counsel that other plaintiff law firms have worked with unify to have a, a single voice. And, and even on the first day of the TRO, while several of us spoke, and I spoke on the phone uh, in court, and there was a, a several in the courtroom, the voices were, were unified. And we were able to quickly you know, have a collective strategy and not step on each other's toes. The other thing that happened that was fantastic was 
the MDL judge, I'm, I'm guessing, was paying attention to all of this. <laughs> because her ears, she... her ears were ears were burning <laughs> about what they were saying about her process. Yeah. So she she scheduled a hearing to occur an hour before the TRO hearing that put the 3M lawyers on the spot and asked pretty hard questions. Like, for example. Like, this funding agreement, it seems bizarre. And you seem to have a lot of problems with the MDL process. I've read your information brief, you know, that attacks the MDL process, yet you agree to all of this. I'm, I'm, I think saying it much more nicely than, um, than those that were listening in on it, including myself, uh, we were quite, quite happy and surprised at um, the palpable anger, if you will, uh, that seemed to be emanating from Pensacola. And then the fact that it happened an hour before the TRO, I think was not coincidental. And when the TRO started, there was the ability to bring to the judge's attention in Indianapolis that the Pensacola judge had scheduled a hearing already and seemed to be perplexed as to what was going on in the chapter 11 case. What happened at that TRO was after the debtors um, were, were quite heavily attacking the MDL, the bankruptcy judge seemed to signal that he was not inclined to grant the TRO because in fact, there wasn't anything happening in the MDL that would prejudice the debtors. There were some depositions coming up, but those were depositions of the plaintiffs and error wasn't paying for any of that. There's depositions of the experts coming up, but 3M was paying for that. So there wasn't anything actually requiring a TRO. The judge signaled he was not inclined to grant one and in fact, didn't grant one. Rather, all the parties agreed to a detente of some of the deadlines, but without a court-ordered stay. That opened the door for us in two ways. And this is just, I've never seen this happen, but I just it was just fantastic to see it happen. Number one, it gave us time to take discovery in the bankruptcy case to set up what became the evidence that allowed us to prevail at the preliminary injunction trial. And then because there wasn't in fact a stay of litigation against 3M, the plaintiffs, including Quinn Emanuel, could take action in the MDL against 3M, which is exactly what we did. Let's talk and about those. First, what, what kind of discovery did you seek? And, and you must be operating on very short fuses here to get this discovery. And then I, I wanna hear about the second part, what action was taken in the MDL? Sure, so on discovery, and this is, this is actually pretty, Pretty typical of bankruptcy, like discovery happens really fast in bankruptcy. You know, we serve document requests and we arrange to take depositions of, of several individuals. The document requests were aimed both at 3M and Arrow on things like give us your board minutes and give us your the transaction history. And, what, and what, what were you see what were you seeking to establish or find out in discovery? What what was important for you? Really two things, and, and one became much more important than the other. One was just the process by which Arrow ended up in bankruptcy. And we were thinking perhaps there'd be a, a bad faith filing argument, which had been tried in LTL Johnson Johnson uh, unsuccessfully. And we just wanted to see whether there was something we could point to. But what became much more important was, did the funding agreement, this uncapped, unconditional funding agreement actually mean what we thought it said? And the discovery we believed helped prove that out. And then 
we wanted to take depositions because we knew that they were going to put on witnesses. We wanted to know what those witnesses were going to say. I ended up taking the deposition of the, you know, I'll put this in air quotes, independent director. Um, very typical in these cases, uh, right before a bankruptcy filing, the, the debtor will appoint independent directors. And the independent directors purport to be independent and, and consider issues you know, even though it might be adverse to the shareholders or, or other big constituents. And that was supposed to be the role of these independent directors here. You know, I, I have in other cases questioned how independent the independent directors actually are. And what happened when I took the deposition, which of course was by Zoom, because that's how we have to do these things now, it became apparent to us that whether it was intended or not, the funding agreement, which the independent directors had been heavily involved in, actually was good for Arrow, but it proved there was no need for uh, an injunction against litigation against 3M. And the reason is, no matter how you sliced it, Arrow was going to be protected, whether or not litigation was proceeding against 3M. And since the purpose of these injunctions is to protect the bankruptcy estate, because somehow it's going to be like harmful to the bankruptcy estate if there's litigation uh, proceeding against its non-debtor parent, this funding agreement disproved it. Would you say then that the funding agreement really backfired in that it showed 3M stood behind Arrow and, and, and there wasn't any need to enjoin the MDL proceeding? When you say it backfired, well, the answer would have to be yes if their intention was to use the funding agreement to justify the bankruptcy, because it ended up not. Mm -hmm. You know, here's the funny thing, and this this became very important for me when I did the cross-examination of the independent director at trial. Do we try to trash him? Do we try to say he's you know, not truly independent, he was a shill, he wasn't really doing his job? Or do we take the position of, hey, you actually negotiated a good agreement, and that <laughs> good agreement proves you don't need this injunctive relief. And as much as I like to kind of you know, <laughs> salivate over tarring and feathering somebody who might deserve it, we decided only to focus on the funding agreement is awesome. And in fact, we would send these emails to everybody saying the funding agreement's awesome. Let's make sure that's the theme of the case. And that ended up being the winning, I think the winning argument. And in, and in the judge's opinion, denying the injunction, he talked about how the funding agreement is uncapped, not conditioned, it seemed to be negotiated in good faith or at arm's length. And it ends up not demonstrating Arrow needs an injunction to protect itself. But let's talk about the second thing that you said you were able to do when you, after the TRO was denied, you got some time, some action was taken in the MDL proceeding. Right. So we talked about how 3M and, and Arrow were co-defendants in the MDL. And the fact that Arrow was a co-defendant meant the litigation against Arrow was stayed by the bankruptcy. And it was a hook to try to enjoin litigation against 3M on the argument it would somehow prejudice Arrow if there was findings against 3M that could be used against Arrow. But because the litigation was not in fact stayed, we could start taking actions directly against 3M. And, and one of the things that Quinn Emanuel filed was a motion to effectively seek to stop 3M from arguing it wasn't 100% directly and independently liable for all of the earplug litigation. Um, and that was filed 
in between the the not denial of a TRO, but the, the lack of a TRO and the hearing uh, on the, the the trial on the on the preliminary injunction. And Adam filed that motion. There was an argument on it in Pensacola. There were some vague threats against us that somehow we were violating the automatic stay, but I, we weren't worried about that. And the night before the preliminary injunction trial started, and it was a Sunday night, Judge Rogers issued an, a decision. And she denied our motion without prejudice, saying it's it's premature. Uh, 3M hasn't really argued successor liability type uh, theories yet. But in doing so, she made a lot of very favorable findings for us that got you know presented to the bankruptcy court uh, during the preliminary injunction hearing. I don't think the, the bankruptcy court was deciding on that basis. And in fact, he didn't. But it was a specter overhanging all of this. And why does that matter? Because if, in fact, we can establish 3M as directly and independently liable, then, then the bankruptcy, at least with respect to the earplugs, is, is borderline irrelevant. We can even dismiss out Arrow and proceed. So what, what was the argument in uh, the motion that Adam filed in the MDL that 3M should be stopped from denying liability? There was a, a number of arguments. One was during the course of the MDL litigation, 3M had effectively taken ownership of all of the liabilities. And, and there was a lot of facts that helped prove that. All of the bellwether trials um, resulted in ver that resulted in verdicts were verdicts um, naming 3M as a defendant, um, where, three, where defense verdicts were rendered. Um, there were arguments that 3M hadn't done anything wrong. Um, some of the verdicts were reduced because of 3M being responsible. We also built up an argument that in 2010, 3M in fact inherited all of these liabilities through what they called an, an upstream of the of the earplug business from Arrow into 3M. And then there was of course just independent liability that existed for 3M anyways. It, it did sell earplugs after acquiring Arrow uh, and had been also, you know, accused of making misrepresentations. All right, well, tell us about the trial then on the preliminary injunction. How, how did that go forward? How long was it? And how long did it take to get a ruling? So it was only really supposed to take a day. It ended up taking three days. Um, I, I'm sure that the bankruptcy judge wasn't thrilled that it took that long, but it, it was just the way that the case went. Uh, Arrow put on uh, four witnesses. It put on uh, the CRO. Chief Restructuring Officer, who had been appointed uh, the day before bankruptcy, he was there really to uh, try to establish what Arrow's business was and how it purportedly would be harmed by the by the MDL. They put on an insurance manager who was actually a 3M employee, but handled all of the insurance for both 3M and Arrow. And there was two insurance towers. One of their arguments was that insurance would get depleted through the litigation. That that didn't work well for them because there was no good evidence of that. They also put on a, a, a person who I believe testified quite often in the MDL about the earplugs themselves, trying to establish that perhaps the earplugs weren't defective. Uh, that, that I don't think resonated with the judge at all. And then they put on the independent director, which was, which was the witness that I had to handle. We called ourselves as an adverse witness, a 3M senior officer who signed the funding agreement uh, that that was a very effective cross, uh, you know, effectively cross examination, adverse witness examination by uh, co counsel. 
And that was largely it. It took three days, but that was largely it. Then both sides did closing. Uh, one of the funny things that happens is, is when you use technology, you got to be careful about it. So uh, Arrow's council had an 80-page closing deck that, you know, I don't know why you'd use an 80-page closing deck, but they did. Uh, they put it up on the screen. Of course, the, the argument wasn't matching what was being presented on the screen, so it, it kind of kept flipping back and forth. And we found it amusing when you're going from slide 10 to slide 79 back to slide 46 that we, we, we were not... Uh, impressed by that. On our side, when um, we, we split up the closing argument, I didn't do any of the closing argument, uh, co-counsel handled it. But of course, uh, people were listening in and at one point, there was a huge amount of feedback that was disruptive. Uh, and the judge finally said, hey, let's take a five minute break while we try to fix this. And that it gave us time to regroup and, and talk about how we wanted to proceed with closing, which I think was beneficial for us. How many people were listening in? I think at some point they said it was well over a hundred. We had in the courtroom, there was, the courtroom was full. There was also an overflow room of lawyers that were just there. I also know it was being heavily reported in the bankruptcy press. There were, there were bankruptcy reporters right. that were live blogging it. How long did it take to get the ruling after the close of the argument? So the argument ended on August 17th and the judge ruled, um, going from memory here, August 26th, I believe. Um, what he did ask us to do at the end of argument, and, and again, this was beneficial for us, he asked us to submit proposed findings, effect, and conclusions of law, and gave us uh, the long weekend to do so. And that was that was really helpful because it allowed us again to marshal all of the evidence and the arguments, and we did it in a very unified way. Like we, Quinn Emanuel, basically took charge of that, but we had a small group of co-counsel that that worked with us, and. That was really helpful. It allowed us to really sharpen the arguments that had come through from the evidence that was actually presented. And you know, the judge wrote his own opinion. It was clearly his own work, but there are elements within that opinion that we think you could you could trace to the proposed findings of that and conclusions of law. Now, did I hear you say that this had never happened before, where an attempt to Put the affiliate or the subsidiary into bankruptcy and enjoin ongoing proceedings against the parent that that never before had that been unsuccessful this this has always been a good strategy for the defendant in the past i, I mean i don't want to say it's never happened because i'm sure there's smaller cases where it has but in the, the mega chapter 11 cases certainly in the last 15 years or so it's almost always been the case that the that the debtor gets the injunction to protect its non-debtor parent, shareholders, or other, you know, co-defendants in, in, in mass tort litigation. And, and it's been very controversial. It was an issue in the Purdue Pharma case that led to congressional hearings and a John Oliver, you know, last week tonight show. Um, all of the Texas two-step cases is, they're extremely controversial. It happened in Caesar's, Caesar's Entertainment, which was the, you know, a big bankruptcy in right. in the Seventh Circuit. Initially, the, the the injunction was denied in that case, but then the Seventh Circuit reversed. Um, and so, why, why why were you successful? Why do you think that you were successful here, and uh, parties opposing these applications were not successful? What what went differently here? What was different about this case? Well, it's always I'm always happy to say good lawyering makes a big difference. And, <laughs> 
Uh, of course, you know, of course, of course. Good lawyering. Yeah, good lawyering. Uh, I mean, there are a couple of, of unique facts. One, this wasn't a Texas two-step, and the funding agreement, the way the funding agreement worked, I think just happened to be beneficial for us. Two, the MDL, you, you, as much as you want to you know, complain about how the MDL worked, it undoubtedly had been working. And the notion that a bankruptcy court judge is going to enjoin an Article III district court's handling of an MDL that affects hundreds of thousands of claimants when there really isn't any harm to the debtor itself, I think that's just a fact we kept, kept playing over and over again. And, it, and one of the things that came out through the trial was Arrow's business, which doesn't involve earplugs anymore, but they do have a business, was perfectly healthy. They weren't losing in employees. They weren't uh, unable to pay debts as they come due. The, the products had been profitable. So why did you need this? Like it, it wasn't, there wasn't any harm to Arrow. That evidence just made that, that obvious. And I think part of the problem that has happened in these other cases, we were able to dodge it here, is because the TROs are almost always granted. The, the side opposing the injunction is already behind the eight ball. And because we didn't have that happen here, it gave us the breathing space to demonstrate, A, the MDL is in fact working and the MDL judge is very much engaged. B, arrow won't be harmed. Right. And the funny, and this probably shouldn't be relevant to why the injunction got denied, but the proof has been in the pudding since then. Since then, arrow's business has not been disrupted at all. Like it's continuing on, even though the We've been litigating against 3M in the MDL since the decision came down. And very soon thereafter, the MDL judge ordered mediation. And there's been a mediation that has been pending in the MDL since the decision by the bankruptcy judge. The funny thing is, the arrow debtors have chosen not to participate. So it's just a mediation between the plaintiffs and 3M. And however that turns out, it turns out. But in the meantime, very little has been happening in the bankruptcy case. Why? Because there's not much to do. Arrow's a, a perfectly happy company. Well, if the mediation is not successful, or even if while the mediation goes on, uh, I assume the MDL is is going to going to go forward. What precipitated the bankruptcy filing was the MDL judge, Judge Rogers, saying, look, I'm going to send these cases, hundreds of these cases, back to be tried in the various district courts. Is that what's happening or what will happen going forward now? These, if, if these cases are sent back to the district courts, it'll just be the cases will be tried against 3M, I assume, period. Correct, just against 3M. Um, my understanding is that there's that the, the MDL judge has ordered the first wave, I think of maybe 500 cases to go back to their courts. There was in fact supposed to be a trial in one of them this month but it got delayed and, and, the, and the MDL judge ordered a delay on it. I, I think there's, there's other issues that might be going on with respect to that, but, but there is no stay. So literally litigation's pending. And importantly, going back to our, uh, our idea of holding 3M directly and independently responsible, we renewed our motion that Adam Olson filed through a summary judgment and Judge Rogers permitted us to file it. We filed a, a pretty detailed summary judgment motion that applies, I, I believe it applies to all of the MDL cases. Uh, 3M has filed its opposition earlier this week. 
we will be filing a reply to that next week. I think there's going to be a hearing on it. And if Judge Rogers resolves it in our favor, it may end all of the earplug claims against the aero debtors. Right. Well, let me change topics now and ask you what it was like to work with these plaintiffs' mass tort lawyers. I, I know it was a new experience for me. This is a practice area where I said earlier, I mean, we're, we don't do this kind of work typically on the plaintiff side. We're involved because the case is really, this whole series of cases started at our firm with Matt Hosen's discovery of that document some years ago. And I know when I went down to Gainesville, Florida to try that case in February of this year and got to spend some time with these uh, plaintiff's lawyers, uh, it was kind of a different experience. I mean, their approach to litigation, uh, in some ways their personalities, uh, the way they conduct themselves are, are different than the people we deal with day in and day out in our, you know, our business disputes practice. What was that like for you? It was a lot of fun. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't deal with uh, the plaintiff's bar very often. They had strong personalities and strong opinions, but I think one, one of the major benefits of our involvement, you know, you, Adam, Matt, and Adam and Matt were with me in Indianapolis, was they, I think they understood that it made a lot of sense not to have, you know, the cats that needed to be herded, but instead have a singular voice. And it really should be a bankruptcy lawyer leading the charge as opposed to the plaintiff's lawyers. This wasn't a jury trial. Bankruptcy judges, you know, are very astute on, you know, commercial matters, corporate governance matters, valuation matters, and their strengths of appealing to a jury, maybe, you know, tugging at the heartstrings wasn't necessarily going to play well. And I think through our team's credibility that have been developed over these years, they deferred to us. Now, trust me, they had very strong opinions and, and colorful language. And, and when we were in the, in the, we'd rented a, a ballroom in the hotel, you know, across the street from the courthouse, we were working late at night and they were there, they were with us. Um, they had no problems, you know, launching tirades, but they were, they were great working with us. And one of the things I found very beneficial is I like to, to mock my arguments so, or mock my cross-examinations. And having their input on those from non-bankruptcy people was helpful. It helped sharpen my questions. It helped, you know, organize the themes, uh, which is something I don't normally you know, experience, and I didn't have a chance to, you know, do pre previous to this case. So that was fun. Yeah. Um, for what it's worth, Matt Hosen's discovery of the Plains report, which, you know, probably angers 3M and his counsel to no end, was definitely mentioned lots of times during the bankruptcy trial. Yeah. Uh, and every single time, we just high five Matt. So. <laughs> All right. Well, fascinating uh, story and congratulations. Great result. Appreciate your joining us on Law Disrupted, Eric. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. 
Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you.